Indeed, it's a blessing, isn't it, to be gathered together on this Sunday morning, to come together at this moment, at this time, and to appreciate certainly the shower of God's blessings upon us. I know that many of us, as we're mindful of the, the list of names who are struggling with health, certainly we reflect upon how good God's been to us. In fact, as we think about some of that today, why not give some thought to where your treasure is? And that's the light, of, in fact, the title I've given to the lesson this morning where your treasure is. And the lesson text read a moment ago from verse 21 of Matthew 6 will be a rather strong guide for some of our discussion a little bit later in the lesson this morning. This introductory slide, as usual, will merely prompt our thinking along a direction to, to develop a little bit more thoroughly some of that which will be the case later in the lesson this morning. We all know a bit about a treasure. It's something of inestimable value. Its value is surpassed by, you see, or not surpassed by other things. It is the greatest of things, a treasure. Sometimes we read books to our children or grandchildren, and it may well reflect in it a concept of treasure and how valuable and how so significant it is. The Word of God talks about treasure as well. And yet, as the truth highlights that before us in the verse we read a moment ago, it reads as simply as this. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That's so simple to say. But isn't it profound? Isn't it very demanding? Isn't it rather amazing to consider all that goes into that description? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. It is an absolute truth. It's true of me. It's true of you. Your heart will be where your treasure is. And my heart will be where my treasure is. There's just no doubt about that. That's true of all of us. When Jesus used that phrase and presented that truth here, why don't you and I then make application of it and do so as we continue in the lesson. And the opening slide, the next slide I should say, will be this one. Why don't we not only think about that text, but use a few other associated verses to encourage us in light of its premise. And remember, our premise is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. You'll notice on that slide that the first thing I would encourage of us is to reflect upon this. The Bible in no uncertain terms. In fact, it seems almost on every page. It tells us that there is an existence after this one. This life is just not all there is. In fact, it's only a very small part of what is. Our time here might be 70 years, 60 years, 80 years. It might even be 100 years. But could I ask, how long does that compare to eternity? And every one of us would say, well, it's almost insignificantly small. You and I are going to be somewhere after we die. That's just how it is. We're going to be somewhere. It'll either be a fine, pleasant place, or it's going to be worse than anything that you could ever imagine. And we've got the chance now. We've got that opportunity now to decide where we're going to be then. Because there will be no deciding it then. The decision will have been made. Where is your treasure? Is it here? If it is, you're making a big mistake. If mine is here, I'm making a big mistake. We've got to think clearer than this. 
We've got to think more soberly than this. We've got to think more carefully than this. I know how very successful the devil can be because he knows that all that you and I have ever seen with our eyes is right here in front of us. And we often can grow to love it. Our house and our land and the things we owned, perhaps our money, our bank account, our notoriety, our fame, whatever it is, we grow to become so familiar with it and we become so acquainted with it. And that's what we, in fact, invest so much in that that's all we think about. And our treasure comes to be that, whatever it is. And suddenly, if that comes to be the case, the devil's got us. Because where your treasure is, there's where your heart's going to be. So our heart's then going to be in our job, in what we own, in the other factors considering our life in this flesh. And although we might know somewhat what the Bible says about that distant place, our heart's not there. Our heart just isn't there. And when we close our eyes in death, it'll be too late. Oh, how we've got to be careful and make sure that our heart, you see, is understanding of the fact we want our treasure to be there. I specifically didn't select the first two verses that were prior to this one, but could you now just go back and look at them with me? In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. You see, it's easy for our treasure to be right here. That's so easy. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. And he went on to explain some things that can happen. Where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. We all know that far too well, don't we? The best laid of plans on this earth can come to naught just like that. A tornado swept through here just a very few years ago and absolutely tore apart everything that some families had ever saved for gone in a matter of moments what about you and me is my house my land I know we would all be saddened and we would certainly not wish to undergo it but isn't it true our heart is somewhere else as Christians because our treasure is somewhere else the possessions you and I own be it a car a truck a tractor we enjoy that God has allowed us to use those things but surely our treasure's not in them. Jesus said thieves are going to break through. Things are going to rust. Things are going to decay, deteriorate. They're going to pass away with the fading moments of time. In the next verse, he would say it like this. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's where the treasure needs to be. There's where the unassailable, unsurpassed value and beauty needs to be in heaven. And then he went on to describe it like this. There's no thieves there. There are no moths there. There's no deterioration there. Isn't that a very refreshing thought? That one labors for sometimes decades here upon this earth, and then it could be gone in a matter of minutes. That'll never happen there. Nothing will deteriorate like that. Nothing will pass away due to thieves or rust. You may notice you're at the bottom of that slide. 
Jesus then in that context now takes us to verse 21. He's just talked about no laying up treasures on earth. That's not a wise thing. He then did encourage us to lay up treasures in heaven, and then he made this definitive statement. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. If your treasure or mine is here on earth, our heart will be there. If our treasure's in heaven, our heart will be there. That means that'll be the most important thing to us. The Lord Jesus Christ and His church and the characteristics of the gospel and the truth that come through it and the nature of our correspondence to it. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. To have said all of that, isn't it true? We could apply that to virtually every arena of life in service to God. Almost every one of them. I would invite us for the next few moments at least to apply it to the consideration of the church in light of the following. What about our attendance of the services of the church? Where's your heart going to be at 6 o'clock tonight? Where will mine be at 6 o'clock tonight? What about 6.30 Wednesday night and 7 o'clock and 7.30? Will I make things prepared and ready so that Wednesday I can look forward to the assembly of the saints? Fair question, isn't it? Why don't we then take a few moments and make some applications of that in the ways you can see there on the slide before you. There isn't a one of us that would disagree to the fact that faith is necessary in order to please God. We say that because the Bible directly says it. For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And therefore, faith is essential. There ain't a body that'll go to heaven without faith. Anybody that is of age. It might well be then in that light. What happens at the times of the assemblies? the increase, the exhortation, the encouragement connected to faith. For isn't it true that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? That's why we focus so at the times of our assemblies. We wish to encourage the faith of ourselves and anyone that's blessed to be with us. You see, the assemblies then have a critical element connected to the motivation and increase of one's faith. May I say, though, that is at all. Look at the next point on that slide. I hope we never forget the fact that as Christians, we have an obligation, an absolutely God-given responsibility to each other. We are expressly told in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, and it's a commandment. It is not a suggestion, and the Greek text will affirm it. Edify one another. We can't edify them if we're somewhere else and they're here. It just can't be done. If I'm at the house and you are here striving to serve the Lord and learn more of His way, and I'm not here, I cannot encourage you. And in fact, I'll be discouraging you. Because your faith is etched in a desire to highlight the Word of God, and apparently my treasure is somewhere else. And might we be quick to say, there are those who cannot be with us due to health reasons or otherwise. They cannot be. But what the Word of God never allows of us is to choose to willfully be somewhere else when the brethren are meeting. If I do that, I'm guilty of sin. The next observation might be this one. 
The Lord requires, you see, that His kingdom be placed first. Matthew 6, verse 33. If I'm not here, clearly, I place something else higher in priority than the Lord's kingdom. Because His kingdom is the church, and you see, I should desire thus to elevate and to respect and to lift high the banner of that kingdom at the opportunities available to me. When Jesus made that statement in Matthew 6, 33, didn't He then directly say that He that is not with me is against me? You see, we can't straddle the fence with the Lord. Either we're with Him, supporting His cause, or we are in fact not exhorting, not encouraging His cause. The last thing on that slide is a reminder of this. There is a chief enemy who the Bible identifies rather clearly. The devil, known as Satan, the diabolical one. He goes about, you see, striving to bring about matters. And he does so desirous of capturing you and me. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And he does not have your best interest or mine at heart. Don't you know he loves to see a Christian then willfully choose not to attend the assemblies? Because their faith is only going to become weaker as time passes. They're already spiritually sick. And it's not going to get any better as long as that attitude prevails. You see, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul spoke about some in Corinth that were spiritually sick. And sadly, he said some of them died that way. Don't you know that brought a tear to Paul's eye? May you and I not live like that. May we love the assemblies and recognize that in them is inherent value, not only by the increasing of our faith, but by what we'll see on the next slide as well. What else might be said about these assemblies? Could I point out that that first set of ideas connected us carefully to the value of faith? There's also something to be said about the Word of God and hence the elements of the Bible. Every one of us understand through the teaching of the Word of God that we must live by the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4. If I choose not to be at the assemblies, am I not making a deliberate and willful choice to guide my life by something other than this? That's what I'm choosing. And I'll have to answer to God for that foolish choice. But isn't it interesting, you and I can never know enough about the Bible. We could study it 24 hours a day for a lifetime and never know it the way we might wish because the devil is able to take it and pervert it and twist it and mankind have become masters at it. And if we're not careful, we'll lose our soul because of it. And there are a group of people who have a heart desired to appreciate the treasure in heaven and I choose not to be there. How wise do you suppose that choice is? How did God look upon the ancient Israelites who chose not to come to the tabernacle? Who chose not to come to the temple? You and I remember rather well how he spoke about it. That soul shall be cut off from his people is what he said. How do you and I feel about it? You may note the next point on that slide is this one. There is a dramatic pattern etched in the pages of the New Testament. 
How often do you and I realize that if we do today what they did then, we can become today what they were then, and we can please the God of heaven? Question, did the first century brethren meet on the first day of the week? They did. Did they meet any other times? They did. Acts 5.42 and otherwise. So, should I then feel it important to be here this evening? Absolutely. What about Wednesday? If I put my treasure in heaven, I will not want to be anywhere else. You see, the first century saints didn't just meet on the first day of the week. They gathered at other times at the temple and at brethren's houses with the desire, you see, to not only learn more about this wonderful gospel, but to appreciate in it the implementation in the matters of their life. Isn't it interesting in that light as well that there's something about association of the Word of God? And it might well be stated so clearly in Psalm 119, verses 19 and 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You and I need to be where brethren are studying this with a desire we can hide it in our hearts so that we will not thus be given to sin. You know, there's something that's happened over recent years. And as a teacher, I certainly can speak somewhat to the aftermath of it. We all know about COVID. There was a period of time when there wasn't a single university in this country meeting for classes. Everything went to Zoom. Since that time, some classes have continued to meet that way. And students might be quick to say, I don't need to come to class. I can stay in my pajamas at the house and I can participate in that class. And I'm here to tell you, you cannot do it either. Learning is not the same. We have loads of students now that supposedly graduated high school and learned their mathematics, and they don't know a thing because for a period of time they were sitting at the house. Maybe they were given some kind of a grade. Maybe they completed some kind of an assignment, but they didn't learn it. There's something about an in-person assembly, and don't you know in God's wisdom that's why He set it up this way? when the first century saints met such persecution and opposition, and in fact, they could be killed for meeting, Paul never told them, stay at the house. He never told them it's all right. He said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And they were still told to be there. What has changed? It is not the same at the house. It's wonderful to listen to radio programs and other things, and we encourage it. And it's a fine thing to encourage one's faith, but it is no substitute for the assemblies. It is not, nor has it ever been. And we begin to notice that where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Where is my treasure and yours? The local congregation of the Lord's people is such that the God of heaven has given order that elders be over it. That these men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, that they have been duly appointed by the Holy Spirit and they have been selected by that congregation to rule over them. Would you consider this with me? There's a strong set of considerations here. Those men are specifically told, feed the flock. 
Therefore, they're going to have to give an answer to God for the degree to which they have fed the flock with the spiritual nourishment that the flock needs. Question. If they are commanded by God to feed, shouldn't the congregation feel obligated by God to eat, to be there to partake of and enjoy the character of that food that's provided? Let's face it, the elders can make selections and choices and they can make sure that the flock's being fed, but what if the flock's not there? Doesn't it seem that the feeding has been somewhat for naught, or at least it's not the degree to which it certainly should have been? You might notice in Acts 20, verse 28, feed the church of God. And so as the elders take care of that, it then also reminds us of that second point on the slide. You and I are commanded in Hebrews 13, 17. Commanded. Obey them that have the rule over you. If the elders in wisdom have determined that for the betterment of the spiritual health of themselves and the flock over which they rule, that there are assembly times on Sunday evenings and Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings and, yea, gospel meetings and other times. And they have made plans and preparation and provision for those things with the idea that it is for the betterment of the church. We are commanded to obey them. We cannot choose to be absent without sin. And thus, when that text of Hebrews 13, 17 puts that idea before us, doesn't it remind us? that the assemblies of the church are not like going to a restaurant. I can choose to go to Wendy's or not, and my eternal salvation is not affected. But we cannot do that when it comes to the services of the Lord's body. Because our treasure, you see, we want to make sure it's in heaven. So far as we've considered the matter of faith and the matter of the eldership, might we also give some thought to what the Bible would describe as what's right that which is right. I begin that slide by inviting you to consider it this way. Wouldn't every single person agree it's a good thing to please God? Surely no one would disagree with this. Every one of us would desire from the words of 1 Peter 3.11 to participate and endorse and encourage that which is good. But now this text almost leaps off the page to us in James 4.17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If I know it's a good thing in regard to the services on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, I know it's good, no question about that, and I choose not to be there. I have sinned. I have become guilty of transgressing the law of God, 1 John 3, verse 4. And thus, it helps us appreciate then that we don't simply go to fulfill a habit. We go because the Lord's people are there and we want to honor His will and learn His will and grow to serve Him more faithfully. But in addition to giving thought to that, the next point on that slide is this one. You and I are examples and we cannot choose to be otherwise. We are examples to those in our family, to those who are acquaintances, to those in the community. We're examples. What does it say to a family member or a friend 
Or what does it say to some other person of acquaintance? Well, he or she may attend once a week. They're never there Sunday night. Never there on Wednesday evening. That's a pretty clear message then that what's taking place at that place is not that important to you. Because otherwise, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Isn't it a reminder then that our example before others can be noteworthy? And that example in every way is serious. But I've especially asked you to consider those that are younger. Those that are younger are not etched deeply in the faith like you and I should be. And when they see us choosing not to go, believe me, it doesn't take them very long to learn what's important to that person and what's not. And they will grow up to more likely than not feel exactly the same way, if even that much. We all know that the church in many ways suffers in light of what would be a future generation. The church in her numbers seems to be dwindling. Congregations are weaker now than they were 20 years ago. We all know that. How many in Jackson County alone have closed their doors in the last two decades? I could list a dozen of them, I think. You and I need to realize that what is the case concerning our life, our kids need to see in us an absolute commitment to the Lord and His church. There are no replacements. Day after day, decision after decision, we put the Lord's kingdom first. That begins with the assemblies. Now might we be quick to say, going to the service isn't the only part of Christianity. But if I don't love the Lord enough to at least go to the assemblies, I'm not going to get much else right. The Lord asks of me in that regard four hours a week. Four hours out of 168. Let's face it, He could have asked for 120 out of every 168, and out of our love for Him, we would have done it. He asked for four out of 168. And sometimes you and I fail in that regard. Shame on us. As you close that slide with me, isn't it true that every sin, of course, is bad? There's no sin that's good. But there are some sins that are sins of ignorance. The Word of God testifies that you may remember God looked in one way on sins of ignorance. He never excused them. But at least He treated them in one way. But how did He treat a deliberate sin? A willful, deliberate sin. Wasn't it different? I would call your attention to Psalm 19, verse 13. Very different. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. In the famous words of David in that unforgettable psalm but to choose willfully to participate in sin is to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, to treat it as an unholy thing, to turn our back upon it. And the Hebrew writer very quickly says there's no forgiveness for that. In that state of affairs, it's hopeless. Oh, how serious it is then in regard to asking, where is my treasure and where's yours? as far as giving some thought to that which is right. God's judgment will begin first at Christians in the words of 1 Peter 4.17. And you and I know that many who otherwise are at least regarded in that way of life will not be saved. We're told that. Matthew 
am I going to be in that number? That I wore the name Christian, but yet I'm going to be found lacking on that day of judgment? Oh, I hope that we don't feel that way. And may you and I not be allowed to be in a position to look upon that in any way any different. The goal of every Christian is to, of course, live faithfully to the Lord. I have said all that to perhaps bring us to this next slide. A slide that just challenges you and me to think about the hereafter. The hereafter. The Word of God testifies to us that there are degrees of faith. There are some who Jesus said had a weak faith. There are others the Lord said had a strong faith. Those are mentioned in texts such as Romans 14.1 and Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 and following. And those that are stronger have an obligation. We can never willfully cause stumbling blocks to be put in the lives of those that are weaker. If you or I, as a supposedly stronger Christian, willfully choose to forsake the assemblies and in so doing put stumbling blocks before those that are weaker in the faith, we have contributed their faithlessness. And we have contributed to their undutifulness before the God of heaven. And God thus won't look upon us guiltless for that. Isn't it interesting in those lights that a person's heart is going to be where your treasure is? There's no doubt about that. Where is your treasure in light of the service to the Lord and in connection to the assemblies? I hope that all of us then have placed our treasure so that when we can be, we look forward to the assemblies and we enjoy the assembling with the saints. And we enjoy the serving the Lord and learning more of His will and learning more how to implement that in our life. The services of the church, as we have discussed it today, allow me to close the lesson just with not only these couple of verses, but verses that I think we can also use to motivate us the gentleman we call Timothy, he was stationed in the city of Ephesus. And after Paul left there to preach and work elsewhere, Paul had some words for Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, and I quote, Paul said to Timothy, Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to prayer. That's what happens at 1030 9.30 on Sunday morning, 5.30 Sunday afternoon, and 7 o'clock Wednesday evening. Those things happen. Exhortation, doctrine, and prayer. Don't you know, Timothy, thus, under the exhortation of Paul, would have been desirous to be where those things were taking place. And it'll be no different for you and me. Three verses later in verse number 16, you may recall that Paul, in a final way, encouraged Timothy thus to not only give attendance to those things, but to be given to the proclamation of those same things. You and I thus look forward to that too. God wants us to love Him. He wants us to be faithful to Him. He wants us to be gathered in places where the devil will have a hard time getting to us. What better place than where the saints are gathering? I would say that as we have looked at these ideas this morning if you've been keeping track of them there was 15 of them 15 separate and independent considerations and if any one of them is right 
God expects us to be present at all of the assemblies. Only one of them has to be right. I'd submit to you, as far as I can aim, that I can tell, all 15 of them are consistent with the Word of God. We have so many ample reasons of encouragement telling us that our heart ought to be not only laid up in terms of the treasure of heaven, but we must desire to elevate the services of the Lord's church and do that with excitement and do that with, in many ways, an attribute of enthusiasm. I hope as we've studied some of these matters today, it's been a reminder that our services are never such that they're optional, unimportant, insignificant. They're not competing with the sport events of the day. They are far more important. And they're not competing with other choices of the day. They're far more important. Today, as we come to this part of our service, we would wish to extend the Lord's invitation as a time that each of us can examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, in the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If we could be of some assistance in anybody's life today, if you have never become a Christian, maybe you have been around it, you have at least witnessed it in the lives of others, and maybe you've realized thus that Jesus died for you and that at this current state in time you're lost. Please don't leave this building that way. Jesus died shedding His blood that you might be saved. And in so doing, He set forward a plan, and the plan involves you to participate in these things. Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His matchless name, and in baptism be buried with Him, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. We'd be honored to assist in that way today. And once you come forward from that watery grave, you can walk faithfully until death, and heaven will be your home, Revelation 2, verse 10. But may I say that as a Christian... If you've wandered off the pathway of faithfulness, maybe your treasure has begun to be laid up somewhere else. And maybe as a consequence, this, the assemblies have not meant to you what they ought to mean. And maybe in general, the church hasn't meant what it ought to mean. You can make that right. And the Lord will purify your heart and put you back in a position to where you can elevate and do all those things that would so grandly please Him. Today, if we could help in that way, won't you make repentance of those sins? Won't you make confession of them? And we'd be delighted to pray unto God. But in either of these ways, if we can be of some assistance, we want you to know that Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. And at this time, the Lord invites you to come, as do we, while together we stand and while we sing.